question for you to get started. Can you think of the name of the company that produces the content that you consume the most on the internet? For me, the answer is starting strength. Second question, can you think of another company or a brand that produces the highest quality content of all the content you consume? For me, that's starting strength. So I show my support by subscribing to the network. It's $8 a month. You can sign up at network.startingstrength.com. If you can afford it, if it's no big deal, if eight bucks a month is a lot of money, don't sweat it and just keep listening for free. Uh, speaking of the rich and the poor, if you're the former, you might be able to afford our gyms. But the good news is the first session's free. It's a free 30-minute coaching session. And if you mention this ad spot at any participating gym, you will get a free 30-minute coaching session. So those are our ads. We are sponsored by ourselves. On with the show. Mildly entertaining, somewhat obscure guests, relatively interesting topics, semi-professional production quality, reasonably well-informed commentary, a great value for the money, hundreds of fans all around the world. It's the Starting Strength Gyms podcast with your host, Ray Gillenwater. On today's show, we have Mr. Timothy Pickwell Esquire, which I thought is a, I've always wanted to be an Esquire, but never wanted to go through the school. Um, Tim, I should warn you before we get started that I've been accused of being as entertaining as a root canal. And uh, to the haters, I just want to let you know that that's all about to change because today on the show, we have a lawyer. So this will be extremely exciting. Hold on, hold on to your seats, my friends. This is going to be, this is going to be a rager. Uh, <laughs> for those that haven't switched us off yet, th this will actually be a fun conversation. Tim is our franchise attorney. Um, I met Tim way back when I didn't know a damn thing about franchising. He was introduced to me by a friend of mine who also sits on the board, um, as I do, of the Realty One Group, who uh, who helps them with, with uh, advising them on franchise matters. I advise them on tech. And I was telling him about this gym I opened in Southern California and asking him about what he thought about scaling, and he suggested the franchise model. I was like, oh, shit, that's, that's brilliant. It works. That would work great. And um, introduced me to Tim. And then Tim has seen us from concept all the way until now. And at time of recording, we've got 20 gyms open. And if I tell you anything further than that, any financial disclosures, Tim will get mad at me because we're supposed to be very tight about what we do and don't share. Um, but we do have our new franchise disclosure document. So we, we have financials in there that we can share, and we might talk about some of that today. Tim, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. By the way, are you charging me for this? Uh, no, but I did note it in the billables and put no charge there. <laughs> Giving you about an hour and a half. Okay, cool. Now I know. At, at, at 85 minutes, we're cutting it off. Um, Tim, the first question I had for you, I've got a lot of stuff I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about us. I want to ask you about franchising. I want to ask you about business. I want to ask you about ethics. I want to ask you about the regulatory environment that we find ourselves in in 2023. I've got a lot of stuff I want to cover, but um, to start, can you please share with, with us your, uh, you know, your no, no shit impression of who we are and, and what we do and how we operate? Because I, I know we're different um, than, than most companies and especially most franchise companies. And I just want to see from your perspective, because uh, you're the one that sees the insides of these companies and how they operate and how they build people and how they behave. Um, what is your perspective on starting strength gyms as a franchise company and the way that we operate versus others? And, and you're welcome to share the, the negative and positive, whatever you think is, is useful to, to share. Well, I'm, I hope I don't disappoint you, but I, you're, you're not all that different than um, a lot of my clients. Um, you're very dispersed in where your uh, employees are located, where your officers are located. But since uh, COVID, that's become the uh, almost the rule, not the exception. Yeah. Um, and I, I have clients that are, their officers and employees are scattered all over the country. Um, you are uh, what I would consider in a startup phase. There's certain milestones in franchising. And the number of franchisors that ever make it to 100 franchises is very limited. Um, 
So, but you've you've gotten past a half a dozen, um, and it's it's sad how many startup franchisors stub their toe and fail with the first franchisees. Um, they aren't successful. Um, one thing leads to another, or in the case of COVID, wiping out uh, quite a few uh, clients of mine, um, they don't make it. So you've um, already passed uh, that important milestone of half a dozen and then 10 franchises. Uh, I know you have more sold than opened, um, which is typical, but um, you are doing something that I'm now starting to see in uh, other concepts, which is a hem heavy emphasis on pre-opening membership sales. Mm. And um, I have another fitness client, they're not weightlifting, not um, uh, similar to yours at all, but they've hired a consultant out of New York and his big emphasis now is helping them um, sell memberships before they actually open a site. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that you guys have been focused on that for quite a while yeah. with, with good results as measured in the FTD. Yeah. The franchise yeah. disclosure document. Right. Yeah. So our thinking there is, is pretty simple. It's like, you know, you've got this long period of time between the moment you sign the franchise agreement and the moment your gym opens, why not start building your community? Why not get people excited? Why not train with people um, and get them ready to go? Because there's only, you know, 96 spots available in most of our gyms. And if you want a primetime spot like Monday, Wednesday, Friday after work, you, you may as well get in early and get that spot secured because there may only be seven, eight spots in that, in that session. Um, so that's, that's been a powerful message for us. We, uh, I think at some point we'll have a gym that opens sold out. We're not, we're not near that yet, but, um, Tim, you can tell me if, if you want me to edit this part out, but we just had our first gym open cash flow positive. Um, so Indianapolis gym number 20 opened, uh, and, and the caveat is the owner of the gym is also coaching half the sessions and not paying himself. So that's a good way to save some money. But nonetheless, between that cost savings and his pre-sale, he opened without losing money, which is pretty unheard of in a retail business. So, so things are working. The, the thing I wanted to, to get at specifically with that question, Tim, is um, we do not charge franchisees for lots of things that franchisors typically charge franchisees for. And for those of you that are not are familiar with these terms, a franchisor is uh, is the 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 company, the entity that operates the franchising model and sells franchises to franchise owners, which are referred to as franchisees. So, Tim, um, I feel I feel like we treat our franchisees really well, especially compared to some of my buddies that, that run franchise companies and some of the horror stories that I've heard. Um, when it comes to revenue streams, for example. We don't, we don't mark up equipment. Um, we, we try to make our money on the franchise fee and the royalty. And I know a lot of franchise companies do that. And then they're also just trying to squeeze a nickel and dime wherever possible for as much as possible. Cause they, they see their business as being in the business of selling franchises and making money off of their franchises. We see ourselves as being in the business of providing exceptional strength training coaching to members. And the franchisee is the fulfillment mechanism for that. And the more successful we make the member, the more successful we make the franchisee, which will mean we'll achieve success as well. Um, is that unique? What, how, how do we compare in that sense? Um, that is the ideal. Um, and as you said, there are, there are some horror stories out there. So 95% of my practice is representing companies like yours, the franchisor. But um, I do review franchise disclosure documents of other concepts. And I've reviewed a couple of fitness franchise concepts the last couple of years that were just, I, I frankly told my franchisee client that the amount of fees uh, was, was outrageous. Um, and I, I'm happy to name names. One was, um, one was Cycle Bar, and they were, um, had hired a very high-powered uh, franchise consulting group out of uh, Cincinnati. And I, they did an amazing job of marketing. They sold several hundred franchises in just a very short period of time. And I warned my client that, um, you know, you have to pay them to help find your location. You have to pay them to help open your location. Um, they're going to need to open two, three, four units a week to meet, to, you know, justify the number of franchise sales they've got. Um, I don't, 
think they're going to have the resources to help you do that. And in addition to it, the highest initial franchise fee I'd seen in, in the small fitness studio area, they charged training fee on top of that, and they charged some other fees on top of that. Um, and I think uh, it can be uh, fact-checked pretty easily on Google. CycleBar sold hundreds of franchises, but then hit a wall. And, um, and then uh, they, in turn, were bought by, I believe, Exponential Fitness uh, a few years back. And um, they have not, they have had to kind of uh, recalibrate. Another uh, concept I looked at recently, um, small here in San Diego County, um, California, uh, three, four gyms. Uh, I was pretty amazed at the fees they were charging for a startup with just uh, one test unit open. But um, warned the client the same thing. These are these are pretty high fees, and and again they were charging extra fee for training, and extra fee for this, and extra fee for that. And um, to your point, Ray, uh, when I do look at a franchise disclosure document on behalf of a prospective franchisee, I look at the audited financials of the franchisor, and I like to see a concept that makes the majority of its revenue off of royalties because they then they are very incentivized to have the franchisees succeed um, grow their top line so that the royalties grow and so the franchisor wins franchisee wins franchisor wins um, now with startups inevitably you are focused on franchise sales so um, I make allowance for that when I'm looking at um, audited financials but you um, you do want to be wary of chains that have reached a certain size and yet the bulk of their revenue still comes on franchise sales because then they are more focused on selling than assuring uh, that the existing franchisees are performing as well as possible. So, I, which also, not to derail you, reminds me, one of your differences, um, you know, you talk about training, um, all franchisors provide some level of training. Um, there's training on how to run a small business, um, uh, site selection, things like that. Um, restaurants can have very complex training to make sure you get the menu right, the recipes right. But you have another level um, that, I'd say similar, you know, I, um, I helped uh, the founder of Club Pilates, which has been, been quite successful. And of course, everyone who is an instructor has to be a certified Pilates instructor, which does require a certain number of hours classes, but you have a, uh, a unique certification through um, uh, Mark Ripito and the, um, the licensing arrangement that you have with the gentleman who developed the training methods that you then um, employ in your gyms. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a little unique uh, in franchising to have that kind of a, a relationship and a certification. Yeah, and it's bad for business. Um, if we're just thinking about short-term growth and and, uh, and and making money, it's not a good idea to have that, that strict of a standard because it limits us, because it limits the amount of coaches that we can put in these gyms. Um, and if we have an ideal for the standard that we want to have in terms of quality of coaching in the gyms, um, and that ideal is enforced by an outside entity that is unwavering and unbending in their commitment to high quality, then that is a potential bottleneck for us and, and a business risk. But a business risk we're willing to take on because we don't have any masters and we're self-funded. So we will grow as slowly as we need to grow or as quickly as we can grow as long as we're able to maintain the level of quality that allows us to sleep at night. Um, and this is important stuff. We're changing people's lives. Um, so I wanted to mention a few things. So ex Exponential. Well, we Okay. I'm going to say you you have um you have mentioned that you'd fix my back problems if you'd open a, a gym here in San Diego. So I'm well, I was actually to that. my my mind almost went there, but I didn't want to put you on the spot. So since you brought it up, Tim, <laughs> since you brought it up, uh, dear YouTube commenters, um, I, I want you to know that Tim is suffering from back pain to the extent that he s sits on a freaking bouncy ball instead of a chair a lot of a lot of days at work. Has tried all kinds of stuff, and I haven't been able to convince the guy to see a coach. In his defense, we don't have a gym. Um, near him, and we'll talk about why we're not opening in California. But if you all, if anyone listening or watching on YouTube rather has uh, 
improve their back pain from starting strength, please add a comment below so I can send Tim this link when it goes live to demonstrate it to him that I'm not full of shit, okay? <laughs> what, I, what I do tell people when I describe some of my clients and some, some of their concepts, what I like about your concept is last time I, I went to the website and was looking at things, while you have many uh, well-muscled, tattooed uh, specimens uh, in, in the program and, and running franchises. To me, it's the stunning uh, work that you can do with a 72-year-old gal or a, an older guy that uh, are suddenly being able to deadlift uh, some impressive weights. That's, to me, more impressive than, um, you know, the Charles Atlas uh, approach is the, the testimonials and the videos I've seen of, of People older than me um, lifting a lot of weight. It's impressive. We've got a 73-year-old guy in Dallas that deadlifts 425. And uh, that's cool. You know, it's cool to lift a big number. But it's the, the thing that we're trying to communicate to the public that's extremely difficult is what that means for you in your day-to-day -day life. How that translates to body composition, metabolic function, muscle mass, balance, power, speed, capability, bone density, um, you know, integrity of your joints and all the, and everything in between. So, uh, we'll, we'll get there. But yeah, as, as you well know, in the, in the boutique fitness space, we stand alone. Nobody's doing what we do. So we're, we're going out with an absolutely unique message and we're trying to, uh, you know, fitness for a lot of people is like religion and you don't want to, uh, contradict somebody's religion. So it's, um, it's touchy, but luckily since we have this relationship with starting strength and we offer starting strength exclusively and we're the, you know, exclusive licensee of the brand for franchise gyms. Um, we focus only on this program, and this program already has a massive audience of people that that want to do it. And and um, that was the the crux of our marketing at the at the outset. We were basically just preaching to the converted, and we're growing from there. And, and speaking of which, that's one thing that does set us apart from other franchise companies. I know other franchise companies focus on franchise sales because they think that's what they're in the business of. We don't focus on franchise sales. We focus on making our franchisees successful. And if we do that well enough, franchises will sell themselves because we're only selling franchises to people that are already drinking the Kool-Aid. You cannot buy a starting strength franchise if you haven't done the starting strength program and you're not absolutely blown away by the results that it's created for you and excited to share that with other people and bring that to other people's lives. And that is just such a stark contrast to the way this industry runs. Typically, a franchise company will hire a broker. The broker will, will just go out and try to peddle franchises, um, sell them as quickly as possible to whomever will buy them, regardless of if they can actually afford it, regardless of if they have the skills to open it successfully. And this is why franchising has such a bad name, which I want to get into in a minute here. I want to talk about the FTC regulation because surprise, surprise, the audience might be surprised to hear, but I, uh, I'm actually in favor of some of the regulation in franchising and some of it's pretty good, to be honest. Um, but we'll get to that in a minute. I wanted to uh, mention to well, you. So since you yeah, mentioned right, brokers, right? right? Um, I see this with concepts. Um, uh, they uh, work with consultants, and consultants in franchising typically want to sell franchises, and that's not a bad thing. But um, often there is a disconnect. The, the broker is an outside salesperson. Um, they're pitching lots of different people on several different concepts, but you start to see it two, three years in where the franchisee has a completely different expectation of what they're supposed to be doing and what the brand is going to do for them. And you get this disconnect when you have a heavy focus on franchise sales and you have outside parties that maybe aren't in tune with the franchisor's culture. And, I, and I've sadly seen that disconnect uh, and it, it doesn't usually end well. Yeah. And we're a family. We do we do an annual retreat with the franchise owners. Everyone there has pretty similar values. We all see the world roughly the same way, which in 2023 is more important than ever. We all have similar goals in terms of business and health and family. Um, it's a it's a it's a wonderful selfless group of people, and everybody works their asses off for the most part. There's always the laggards to try to pursue this this mission personally of bringing starting strength to their community and then being part of this bigger goal that we're trying to achieve, which is changing the fitness landscape and, and helping people make better decisions about how they spend their time um, at the gym because most people are, are 
inefficient and confused in, in what they're doing and they could have a much better outcome for the time and money invested. And then you mentioned the, the looking at audited financials and most of the revenue coming from royalties. The way we measure whether or not we're cash flow positive is based on royalties. We view franchise sales as just icing on the cake and, and uh, we, don't, we don't make them a business imperative because that's, that creates a, the wrong incentive for us. Um, and for anyone that looks at our FDD, you will notice that we do sell things other than franchises and, char and charge for royalties, and that is begrudgingly. So we've had to build our own software at great risk and expense to us, which we resell, and I would, believe me when I tell you, I do not wanna be in the software business. <laughs> and then beyond that, we do some construction services and things, but if we are attempting to open a business and all the vendors are shit, it's like, well, do we just continue to rely on shit vendors that overcharge us and don't deliver? Or do we just insource it and do it ourselves? And we only insource it and do it ourselves if we can do a better job and do it for the same price or cheaper. That's our internal compass. Um, so Tim, let's, let's move to regulation. Talk to me about the things that have gone wrong in the past with franchising and what, what regulations uh, are, are relevant and why they were created, just kind of the big picture stuff from your point of view. Well, let's give the, uh, the three-minute history of franchising. Um, you can go as far back as uh, Singer sewing machines in the 1800s, but really A&W Root Beer started in 1924. Holiday Inn started in, uh, or excuse me, Howard Johnson started in the 1930s. And um, a big part of franchising is obviously the licensing of the franchisor's name, um, having a business substantially associated with the franchisor's trademark. It was after World War II that uh, United States trademark licensing laws were, were loosened and permitted um, much easier licensing. And this ignited a boom time in franchise in the 50s and 60s. You had um, uh, Dairy Queen starting. You had, at age 62, Colonel Sanders starting um, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. You had numerous other concepts. And then homework for anyone listening to this is watch the founder with Michael J. Keaton about Ray Kroc and McDonald's because Ray Kroc, I, I believe the movie's accurate. Um, Ray Kroc invented business format franchising and business format franchising is what uh, starting strength does. It's providing uh, basically a, all the tools in a box to a franchisee. Uh, here's what the uh, gym is going to look like. Here is the equipment. Here are the vendors you buy the equipment from. Here is how you set it up. Uh, here is uh, how you teach classes. Here is um, uh, how you market. Um, and that's what is shown in the, in the founder, uh, Ray Kroc, uh, you know, borrowed heavily from the McDonald brothers. But um, you know, here's here's how the kitchen is designed and laid out. Here's the list of suppliers and vendors. And um, that's how it works. That is called business format franchising as opposed to just a product distribution franchise that is much looser. So look, appearance, feel of every gym should be the same, just as in uh, most uh, franchise concepts. Uh, you would be uh, at home walking into one in Idaho as you would in one in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the boom times and things were great. Um, but uh, there were a lot of celebrities lending their name to franchising. And the wheel started to fall off in the late 60s, early 1970s. And you had celebrities like Joe Namath uh, lending his name to a concept called Broadway Joe's that sold, uh, raised a bunch of capital, went public, opened exactly one restaurant and collapsed. Uh, <laughs> Minnie Pearl uh, lent her name to a, a very fast growing franchise concept that went public, that stock cratered. They, they, um, uh, led to some revenue recognition rules because they would recognize the revenue from franchise sales instantly, even though the franchise has never opened. Mm. Uh, so by 1970, uh, the United States Senate was investigating franchising and um, Johnny Carson, the, the TV uh, host and Mickey Mantle testified in front of uh, the United States Senate about franchising because they'd lent their name to concepts. Uh, the New York attorney general was investigating franchising and the attorney general for the state of California said next to land subdivision issues, this is 1970, next to land subdivision issues, the single greatest source of complaints we get is from about franchising. Hmm. So there was per this perception at the time that 
you know, the white shoe salesmen were uh, blowing into town, putting on a dog and pony show, taking uh, an unsophisticated mom and pop, taking their life savings and then disappearing. Yep. And the franchise store would collapse and nobody would ever open. Yep. So that was the perception. Those were the investigations going on. And to address this, California passed the very first franchise registration and disclosure law, the California Franchise Investment um, Law. Uh, and there were three aspects to it. One, um, so that nobody would be misled, you had to provide a prospective franchisee with a thick document at the time called a Uniform Franchise Offering Circular. That's lingo has been changed to franchise disclosure document. That is, it's not just the contract. It's, it discloses everything about the franchisor, everything about its executives, everything about litigation the company's been involved in or litigation the executives have been involved in. Uh, all fees that you might ever pay, um, the estimated initial investment to open the concept, on and on and on. Yeah, whether, and then a sample, whether or not we've been to jail, filed for bankruptcy, um, all that, all that. Optionally, yeah. we can we can disclose how the franchises are actually doing financially, all that kind of stuff, right? Right. And so um, that was the first aspect of the law that you had to provide this document to a prospective franchisee uh, at the time, ten business days. Now it's just fourteen days before they can sign a contract or um, pay any money. So it's not a cooling off period, but they have to have this document in their hand, sign a receipt for it, and wait two weeks before um, they can pay any money or sign the franchise agreement. Second aspect of California law was that this document needed to be registered with the state. The franchisor needed to be registered. The document needed to be filed and is reviewed by an attorney in what is now the Department of Financial Performance and Innovation. Um, was the Department of Corporations at any rate. An attorney reviews it, not, not to evaluate the merits. Um, that's not their job. And they're not in the business of saying your fees are too high or your fees are too low. They're just making sure that um, all the required disclosures are in the, the document and um, appropriately drafted, that type of thing. And then the third aspect of California's law was called the California Franchise Relations Act and it prohibited discrimination by a franchisor against franchisees. It um, permitted franchisees to form associations similar to a union that the franchisor uh, had to permit. And it, it, the law mandates that a uh, franchisee can only be terminated for good cause, which is usually a material breach of the franchise agreement um, or some, some external event like the franchisee files bankruptcy. But um, uh, so three aspects, use of this disclosure document, registration, review by an attorney, and um, this law protecting the franchisee from uh, arbitrary termination. So four, 13 states followed California um, and passed very similar laws. Uh, New York, Virginia, Maryland, um, little hodgepodge of states, Washington, Hawaii. Um, and it took about a decade before the federal government through the Federal Trade Commission got involved. And the Federal Trade Commission law is a little bit different. There's no franchise protection rules and there's no registration or review, but you're required to use a particular form of franchise disclosure document. And then happily for my profession and for clients, the 14 registration states and the Federal Trade Commission got together and they agreed on one form of document so that you don't have to have 14 different versions. Um, but this document has to be used in all 50 states and you have to comply with state and federal law at the same time. So uh, regardless of state, you need to give out this franchise disclosure document unless some type of an exemption applies. And there are several exemptions, but they generally involve uh, very large franchisors who've been in business X amount of years, have a significant net worth and um, uh, have X number of units open. Um, the other type of exemption focuses on the franchisee, high net worth individuals are deemed uh, capable of looking out for themselves, they're sophisticated purchasers. So uh, in certain circumstances, if some of these exemptions apply, you don't need the franchise disclosure document. But for the most part, it's it's hard to fit through all these exemptions um, um, and it's easier to comply and have a franchise disclosure document. So, um, and I've so carefully 
managed my career in life that I draft these for a living and uh, <laughs> have drafted yours. For $50,000. 50, yeah, it's uh, just... Don't, don't say that. It's way more than that. <laughs> um, yeah, just in case anyone's uh, um, having delusions of grandeur here like like I once did. Um, uh, it's You have to spend three months just sitting on your hands getting this document well, created. And it's it very... Yeah, expensive. well, we tell people, we have a sample budget that a startup franchisor operating on a shoestring uh, is going to need at least $200,000 in its first couple of years. And sadly, only about 50,000 of that is legal fees. Yeah. But that that um, goes to formation of the franchisor entity, perhaps formation of related entities, uh, filing of trademarks and, and prosecuting any, any trademark issues, uh, fees to firm such as myself to develop the franchise disclosure document. And um, then you often have to react to examiners and change and, and uh, negotiate changes in the in the FDD. And then the other remaining fees are training manuals, uh, search engine optimization, upgrading the website, um, you name it. But um, that's, and happily that can be spread out over a couple of years. Um, but it all depends on you know how fast the franchisor is moving, unexpected expenses that that are incurred, unexpected um, global pandemics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, uh, sitting here in California, uh, at least three of my um, clients went out of business, including an in, uh, indoor cycling concept that had grown to you know thirty franchises, but most of them were in California and they couldn't couldn't survive. Yeah. Just terrible. terrible. Yeah. Um, and we have made, well, anyway, I hope that, no, that's the regulatory environment. We, we are dealing with federal laws and state laws. And I will say that um, the federal law was massively revised in 2007, effective 2009. That's why we have this name change to franchise disclosure document. Uh, some regulations were tightened, some were loosened. Um, and then there is a, an organization called the North American Securities Administrators Association, to which these 14 registration states that I mentioned, all of those examiners belong to this organization. Uh, the initials are NASA, just like the space thing, but nothing to do with the, the space program. Uh, and NASA, uh, the Federal Trade Commission has been fairly quiet for several years after the, the changes to the rule, but NASA has been extremely active. and. Um, uh, requiring some substantial changes, uh, always to the benefit of franchisees. They do not, uh, they see their role and their job. And I, I talk to examiners, I go to seminars, they absolutely see their job and their role as protecting prospective franchisees. That is what they think when they get up in the morning. And that is um, the basis for their comments and letters they send and changes they request. And so NASA has been aggressively changing law recently to remove all sorts of, you know, very friendly, helpful disclaimers we used to put in documents that, you know, said, uh, you know, success is not guaranteed and you must rely on your own business judgment and experience. We have to get all those out of the document. Now. You wouldn't want to be honest. Um, you wouldn't want to actually let them know. know what no. reality is. I mean, listen, this will just yeah. work. Just sign up and it'll work, right? Well, in California, um, has revised its franchise laws a couple of times in the last six years, including effective January 1, 2023, um, to codify um, these new NASA rules. And to, you know, uh, we used to ask a franchisee to sign a questionnaire, you know, please confirm no promises were made to you outside the franchise disclosure document. Please confirm nobody assured that you would be successful. Please, you know, confirm what date you got this document. Please confirm you had an opportunity to speak to a lawyer or an accountant, whether you did or not. Well, we, we can't use those questionnaires anymore. Yeah, yeah, and so, as usual, yeah. Tim, the th this probably started with good intentions, and then a bureaucracy gets built around the concept, and then the bureaucracy grows and then works to um, promote its own interests eventually. Because here's here's my perspective on this whole thing. There needs to be regulation here. Because these uh, white shoe salesmen that you mentioned would show up and say, uh, hey, you know, all of you unassuming people that have some cash set aside or are willing to take out some loans, 
Wouldn't you love to be an entrepreneur and have the independence of business ownership? Well, if you sign today, then we can give you X discount on the franchise fee and you know, you're guaranteed to be successful. You, that can't happen. That's, that's dishonest and it's bullshit. So from my point of view, the regulation should be, sh should try to accomplish two things. Number one, it should punish severely dishonesty, should punish severely dishonesty. Um, and number two, it should mandate transparency. And I think this should apply at every level of society. I think this should apply to a senator. So if a senator is dishonest, there's a massive penalty for that. Um, a senator should have to disclose his financials at the, the moment he takes office all the way through his career so we can watch his net worth grow or not and then make parallels to what committees he sits on. This should apply to massive megacorps. This should apply to franchise companies. If the government just focused on making sure people did not lie or punishing people that did lie and making it so that consumers had informed choice so they could make an informed decision, then the regulation would, would make a whole lot of sense. The trouble is you get all these people that wanna create these specific laws to, to solve specific problems, but they're not thinking multi-layers deep and they're not thinking about the unintended consequences. And when you plug one problem over here, three, three on the other side pop up. And this is not something that a, a bureaucrat who's never done any business themselves can possibly fathom. And so you have, we're being regulated by people that don't actually understand business because they've never been in business. Um, and a perfect example of this is when we were trying to do a gym in Washington, we registered up there because we were going to do a gym in Seattle. That was right before COVID ended up falling through. Um, thank goodness. Uh, and the regulator there put a warning on our, on our audited financials saying that, you know, we're, um, we might be in a, a financially compromised position. Um, and the, the, the trouble with these I idiots, just say that half, at least half my clients have that warning. Yeah, it's yeah. not a reflection on my client base. It's just, um, and if you just, uh, automatically Washington does that for any initial filers, no matter how healthy their financials. And, and to your point, I have a clients, you know, they get inquiries um, and they want to do a market test or they want to go chat with people in one of these registration states, um, which was what any normal businessman would do. You'd want to you know, sound out the market, look around, talk to several people, gauge interest before you go to the expense of filing and registering. But that's not how the law is written. Right. You have to file and register first before you even talk to anybody. You're not even allowed to and, talk about the idea unless you're registered there. Yeah. Yeah. You just say, I can take your name and number, get back to you. Um, I think I think some of the drafters of these franchise laws would disagree with me, but I feel that franchising has done an extremely poor job of adapting to the internet, which has been around for what, 25 years. Um, uh, and there's so much information out there now for a franchisee to poke around. First of all, the laws, the registration states, uh, Again, you have to register before you talk to anybody, but they don't make allowance for the fact that now uh, franchisors like yourself are, are often approached first. The sure. laws assume that you're doing road shows at the um, uh, conference room at a um, hotel near the airport and you're blowing in and out of town and you're running print ads. And so um, they don't anticipate that it's a person who's not satisfied with their corporate job and they they want to be an entrepreneur they start poking around for ideas about franchising they look at certain concepts and they they reach out to franchisors that happens all the time yeah um there's Legal. also yeah there's also websites out there you know for bad franchisors there's a website there's blue mau mau and there's others um you know the, the word gets out you know whether it's yelp reviews or, or anything else if a franchisor is mistreating its franchisees or um, making misrepresentations you can, you, there's, there's so much more information out there today than there was when these laws were drafted in 1970. So, um, some, sometimes we discuss at these conferences, the American Bar Association Franchise Law Forum, um, you know, is, is the franchise disclosure document obsolete? Are the laws obsolete? Um, but nobody wants to see them go away. Not the examiners, not the attorneys who make a living on it. Of course not. Of course not. Bureaucracy has mentioned. Yeah, and that, that would be one of the, the core tenets uh, when I'm elected president of the world, Mr. Pickwell. Uh, one of the core tenets of transparency is that the government needs to provide a forum, an area that's run by a private organization, by the way, not run by the government, 
that provides transparency on actual performance of the business. How do they treat people? What are the complaints against them? What are the unresolved complaints? This is all information that we as consumers need to know so we can make an informed decision about all important decisions in our life, whether it's a medication or a government official we're voting for or a franchise we're trying to purchase or a product we want to buy, right? But um, that's not the way government runs, Tim. So that's not, that's not going to happen. Um, speaking of regulation, I know, I know there's a bit of a risk talking about this, but I've always just erred on the side of being honest about how, how we feel and what we want to do at, at this moment in time. Let's talk about our decision to not open gyms in California, New York, New Jersey, and a few other places. So um, California really showed their hand during COVID as far as what they view their role is. They view their role as we, we are the subjects and they are, they are in charge and they get to dictate what we get to do with our lives and if we get to be in business or not. Um, and a lot of other states are similar. And uh, that in itself is a disqualifying factor. Just that mentality of governance is a disqualifying factor. It is an antithetical to the American spirit. Beyond that, these fucking idiots are proposing, what is it, a $24 minimum wage for any restaurant that has over 100 units? They're also proposing a wealth tax. If you have over X million dollars in the bank, that gets taxed annually. Um, they're also proposing that for if you're a franchisee and you're sued, your franchisor is counter as a as a party to the lawsuit. You're a co-employer. Um, I could go on and on and on. Th these people have lost their fucking minds. Can I please get your legal opinion on this? Well, I, I didn't flee the state, so I had to live through it, <laughs> and I watched my client base shrink. I um. Uh, the clients I lost almost immediately, uh, in-person high school, middle school and high school tutoring. Um, who needs that? Had three, not essential. Yeah. Gone. They had to close their doors. Um, tried to ne renegotiate rents with landlords, um, with no success. And since they weren't allowed to have students, but they had rent, they were gone. Um, some small fitness studios want to start up with, with two, two units, other this indoor cycling uh, that, you know, dragged on. They, you know, had to close their doors. They weren't allowed to have classes unless they did it on the sly with the, the, the blinds closed. Um, another client uh, had been in business many years, did after school enrichment programs, you know, kind of babysitting uh, to bridge that gap between when school closed at 2.33 to when the parents could pick up the kids at five. But um, they did fitness and athletic classes, everything from uh, cheerleading to soccer, whatever, uh, on the campus of an elementary school after school. Not essential. And had to close. Yep. So um, I lived through, you know, half a dozen of my clients closing uh, either immediately or over the course of a year. And I also had an interesting experience while waiting in line because we had to wait outside uh, the Verizon store uh, in six foot distances, um, which is based right on across, science. right across um, parking lot uh, from a um, fitness studio. Um, and I want to say this brave lady, uh, a pure bar, some type of a bar uh, type of um, fitness concept. And she had a sign on her door that said to the sheriff, do not come in unless you have a warrant. Nice. And while I was there, she had a class finish up. People left smiling, thanking her. And uh, mall security and some officious looking individual came and had some talk with her. And she basically told him to pound sand and went back in her studio and locked it. But, Hell yeah. Um, she was, you know, uh, good for her. And she did what she could do to try to stay alive. And it was, it's just sad. Um, and, there is no guarantee that, you know, this is this is a state that took a skateboard park in San Clemente and filled it up with sand so that kids couldn't skateboard. This is a state where a guy paddleboarding in the ocean was, you know, run down by the, the lifeguards. Uh, yeah. Just crazy stuff. When I lived there and, during this time, they closed the beach. They closed the beach. They closed the parks by my house. They took off the basketball hoops. Um, I took yeah. my niece, who was two or three at the time, to a park that was closed, and someone yelled at me as they passed by. 
Um, I was on an empty trail with a friend walking outside and someone from about a hundred feet away yelled, where are your masks? I was walking outside. I was walking outside in downtown Fullerton with my wife and we passed a guy in an alleyway who yelled at us for not wearing masks outside. I mean, the, 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 the you, you know the people there that love the authoritarianism good for you enjoy yourselves but that is not us and and thankfully tim our it just so happens that the people that are interested in improving themselves and are okay with delayed gratification and hard work are also the same people that are anti-authoritarian and i just want to take a minute here and t- and brie please please uh, make a clip out of this because i i want to I want to send my my most sincere thanks. I want to send my most sincere thanks to the members that continued to pay their membership during the shutdown. Our gyms were closed for two months. We were a brand new franchise. We had four gyms open. I was not making any money, not a dime. The founding team was was working off scraps. Our bank account was at constant risk of being empty. And the whole country got shut down for two months. And the only reason why this company still exists today, the only reason why we're able to do what we, that, what we intended to do initially is because the members at those gyms, most, the vast majority of the members at those gyms continued to pay their membership, even though we were closed, because they care about us and the service we provide that much. And I just want to let you know that we are forever indebted to you and we feel the same way in return. And I, I, I hope that we've shown you that level of gratitude and we've repaid your gratitude with our hard work and our service and we've repaid the loans obviously but i just want to make that very clear without your generosity this company would be dead so and this is my life's work and my life's dream and it helps thousands of people and lots of people depend on it creates tons of jobs we're doing important work here so thank you very much for continuing to pay while we were while we were shut down it it it, it literally saved our lives by the way tim um, how many of your of your uh, franchise companies are self funded? Is this a common thing? Are we nuts? Well, you know, people will find investors. Um, they typically uh, are not the type of business that can go get a bank loan. Um, so either they fund themselves or they uh, uh, find investors, uh, private equity groups, or um, smaller angel type investors um, and some you know often family members uh, one of uh, my, my clients uh, definitely uh, had a very successful uh, initial store uh, and then got got a loan from mom who was a successful businesswoman and, uh, that that is a something I've seen frequently yep yeah we uh we opened this thing with a quarter million dollars, and then um, and then we added another two hundred to two fifty, and that's the total amount that we've put into this, into this thing. And talk about a shoestring budget. I mean, we we're just I, I describe it as as juggling with with uh, machetes. You know, it's just <laughs> there's like you, you need to invest in the future. You need to. Um, build a capability you need to build an organization you need to provide the tools materials resources and support so that you can be successful while at the same time being a financial steward and not overspending and not putting yourself into bankruptcy and that careful balance has no exaggeration has been the hardest thing i've ever done in my life if we needed to be cash flow positive we hit cash flow positive based on royalties months back we are now investing and losing 20 30 grand a month because we're we're building our marketing capability and investing in the future but if we had to wind back and 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 be cash flow positive to sustain, we could. So that's comforting to know. We'd have to furlough some people. Um, so we're in a good spot. And and you know the magic the magic spot, as far as I know, for my buddies that run franchise companies like the Realty One Group and True Rest, um, 40, 40 units is the magic spot. So once we're at forty units, we'll have some real scale here, um, and we'll be able to invest more. We'll be able to grow more, um, new capability, better quality of service, better member experience, and we'll just continue to elevate ourselves above the competition in a way that that. No one's going to ever be able to touch us. Not at this price tier anyways. Um, with that in mind, Tim, is there anything from your perspective that we should be doing differently or we could be doing better based on your sort of outside perspective? Wow, that puts me on the spot. Um, <laughs> I don't have any insight into 
how you manage your internal paperwork and execution of contracts. Some clients have us fill out their contracts, uh, even to the point pre-COVID, pre pre-DocuSign, uh, where we put the sign here stickies uh, all over the franchise agreement and exhibits. Um, and I've had other clients uh, never hear from them. They do all the paperwork themselves. Sometimes they do it well. Other times they put an entity name that doesn't exist, that uh, franchisees said they formed a company. They didn't really, um, you know, think, things like that. So knowing knowing how um, detail-oriented uh, Jennifer is, I would guess that your, your paperwork's probably buttoned down pretty well. I was just going to say, um, you know Jen works here, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I would I would guess you, you're in good shape. Um, but uh, no, I, I... When you charge people by the hour, like I do, they tend to not come to you with every little detail about their business can't or, afford or problems. So, that's that that's yeah. that juggling machetes thing, man. Can't afford it. We'd love to have you involved yeah. in everything. Um, yeah. But you might be happy to know that we did hire some part-time kind of uh, legal executive uh, assistants just to go through our non-franchise related contracts, make sure we're not exposed, um, double check all of our waivers, we're at a stage now where it, it makes sense to go back and, and look for things that might have been done the perfect expensive way, might not have been done the perfect expensive way and uh, and plug any holes that exist. So luckily the audit has come back and, and there aren't too many major issues at all, but um, the, the, the moderate or the minor ones that exist we're still going to address because we got a lot to lose. There's uh, a lot of people that depend on this company, you know. Sure. By the way, Tim, back to your your uh, Ray Kroc comment. I thought you might be entertained to know that um, I've been a part of the starting strength community for a long time. When I announced this thing in 2018 to the community, uh, there was there was some backlash, and uh, apparently the word the word around was I was being compared to a Ray Kroc and not in a complimentary sort of way. So um, hopefully, I've I've proved the naysayers wrong, and uh, I'm always amused by people's assumptions and jumping to conclusions without enough information. So here we are. Tim, one thing I wanted to talk to you about as well is uh, the number of units that we've opened. So our, since this is in our FDD, we can disclose it. Uh, during 2020, we managed to open a gym. So Starting Strength Denver was our fourth gym and that opened in January of 2020. And um, lo and behold, uh, we didn't open any other gyms that year. but What's pretty amazing to me is in 2021, we opened seven gyms. So going back to the point about our community being people that are anti-authoritarian and, and not into this whole top-down control thing, they're like, you know, fuck it, we're going for it. And a lot of people realized who their real employers were at their, at their heart, at their core, and no longer wanted to be a part of that bullshit and came to join us. And then in 2022, we opened six. And now we're, we're achieving some economies of scale and we have some new resources and talent. So when it comes to construction, we'll be a lot faster. When it comes to real estate selection, we'll be a lot faster. Uh, when it comes to coach development, we'll be a lot more efficient. Um, so good things to come. We're, hit, we're hitting an inflection point. We're hitting our stride. Uh, as you know, we hired Luke as the president. I'm now focused on marketing. Um, we've got Jen some help, so she's not having to do five jobs. Um, we just launched our new website, which I need to send you, by the way, for review. Um, so please be gentle on your billing for that. Um, well, Ray, what, you, what you're talking about is, is excellent. And it's if if a franchisor is going to be successful and the concept can play outside of the, the original markets. And I I have a background in the restaurant industry. Um, and it's it's fascinating sometimes how a concept can succeed in a regional area. But when they try to take it to a new state, it fails. So anyway, uh, as you snowball and you have the success, it's everything you've talked about. You start getting economies of scale. You have now... Uh, have feedback on 40 different sites. Um, and so you know better than ever what's working and what's not working. And, and your site selection criteria get very refined and tight and, and um, everything about it snowballs, including um, you start to see uh, if, you, if you have two people, one is probably going to be more successful than the other. If you have 40, you're going to start seeing a range of uh, who are the better managers and why and what what 
is their background and what characteristics do they have? Yep. And so you start a better selection process. Yep. So it, the success can snowball, hopefully. Indeed. And one thing we're discovering too is instead of us providing all the training, which, which we need to do and is an important part of our role, what we're finding now is that we have so many franchise owners that have taken our model and refined it and have maximized its potential. And in a lot of cases, these people are, are the best to share their best practices with others because they're in the trenches doing the work every day. And our, our uh, conception at this point is, is a bit theoretical. You know, every, every shareholder of the franchise company owns at least part of one gym in this franchise. And some of us own a, an entire gym ourselves. But um, nonetheless, some of these guys, you know, like Mark Diffley down in Austin, like Brandon Kubo here in Boise, they have really figured out how to optimize this model um, and their wealth, their wealth of information. And when we get together in this annual re retreat, there's just so much good information being shared. And, uh, and it's just great to see everyone wanted to help each other out. And we just, there's a, there's a theme, there's a vibe in our company of service, of getting, um, getting value, getting getting satisfaction out of helping other people. And I think that's, that's one of the strongest traits that we have. And, and we, we select for that. So it just, we find ourselves surrounded by a bunch of great people. I see that with um, my clients that uh, drill, drill down and get all sorts of uh, financial information from franchisees and share it with the community so that people can benchmark how they're doing or why they're not doing as well. Um, and, uh, they share the information at conferences or on conference calls. Um, and it really is, it's the sharing of best practices. And, you know, back to this franchise disclosure document, um, you might've mentioned that we, we include a lot of information about the system. We show in one section uh, charts that show how the franchise system has grown or shrunk in the last three years. And we also then list the name of every franchisee in the system uh, including those who have signed but not yet opened. And in a section I often call the anti-franchise sales section, we list the name and contact information, phone number of franchisees who've been terminated in the last year, uh, if any. Um, and so when the prospective franchisee uh, gets the franchise disclosure document, there's a, a list of names, addresses, phone numbers, people they can call. And you know, sometimes in a small system, Franchisee gets tired of answering phone calls um, all the time, but um, you know you may get lucky if you call four or five and and get get honest answer what the system is like and how they what they do like and don't like. And then um, you know I had a client. This was a franchisee client. She called the franchisees who'd been terminated in this one system, and she said, you know, kind of came to the conclusion they deserved it. Um, she it didn't deter her. She decided she was an exceptional businesswoman herself. Um, and she decided that these people uh, didn't know what they were doing and had, had made mistakes that were their own fault. So, um, or you may call these people and they say they hate the franchisor and here's why, and they were misled. So, but anyway, all that information is in the FDD. The, the franchise disclosure document has a wealth of information for a prospective franchisee. Yeah, we love transparency, you know, uh, we've got nothing to hide. That's the theme of this whole podcast, and that's why I like the regulation, even though it's it is expensive um, and cumbersome. I think uh, I think the fact that we have to disclose everything is great, um, and it puts us on a, a level playing field. Because as you might be aware, Tim, the fitness industry isn't the most honest industry in the way that people market themselves. <laughs> so we're trying to be the ones that tell the truth and back up our truth with data and actual results and stories. Um, Tim, you've seen a bunch of companies. That's why you talk about talk about laws and regulations. Listen, California has quite a few laws about gym memberships yeah. and, and contracts and yep. uh, disclosures. Uh, yeah, they must get paid by the letter over there. Um, Tim, do you have any advice for us? Because you've you've seen you've seen a bunch of uh, franchise companies uh, grow and fail over the years. You've seen several at our stage, you know, twenty-ish units. You've seen similar financial situations, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I'd love any advice as long as I've got your time for free. Sure. Um, well, I, I think continue doing what you're doing. Um, the more successful concepts that I've worked with grew organically initially with literally running the business out of the trunk of their car and handing me um, franchise agreements. That one has some wine stains on it because we signed it in a spa. Um, <laughs> but uh, that client... Uh, ran things on a shoestring, didn't 
uh, hire employees till she had reached a certain critical mass. And then unfortunately had an employment uh, issue with her, her first employee that, that led to you know, an arbitration. And, and that, that kind of soured her. <laughs> she finally did hire more employees. And then she got, she got big enough that um, she knew what she didn't know. She, she felt she'd taken it as far as she could. And she sold 75% of the business to a very hard charging entrepreneur and it worked out well for, for both of them. Um, and then interesting concept, um, two very successful business people in their um, uh, late 50s, early 60s with the whole career of success behind them, um, husband and wife, a very successful concept. And um, they stubbed their toe and they they shut it down after about three or four years. And I asked them, I said, what happened? What went wrong? And um, the husband said, you know, we thought franchising was so unique and different that we threw out all our business experience and judgment. And we listened to some consultants and we spent too much money. And I, and I thought back to when the consultant they were working with suddenly went in-house and was on the payroll when they had zero franchises sold. And I thought that was a bad sign. And and that's what he told me. He said, we threw out all our business judgment. We, we thought franchising was so mysterious that business rules didn't apply, but they do apply. And so, you know, keep it on a shoestring. Um, uh, only add staff when it's, it's absolutely necessary and you can justify it and grow organically. Um, you can probably, your, your system with the, the, Credential you need to be a, a trainer is might be different, but you know I see I've seen a number of concepts that hire a uh, um, high flying uh, brokerage group that you know they they promise some stories like we got forty business brokers nationwide we're going to put a package together we're going to be on a phone call Monday morning with forty thousand business brokers and we're going to sell two hundred franchises and in return we want twenty five percent of the royalties forever. And we want 80% of the initial franchise fee. And, um, you know, there's the, the landscape is littered from the 70s to more recently with chains that grew really fast and then collapsed. And uh, names include Curves, Coldstone Creamery, um, and many others. And so I, I really, the, the successful chains I see are patient and grow organically. And then you get to a certain size, you know, you can have, your corporate structure with your franchise salespeople and your trainers and, and everybody else, but yeah. you're not there yet. Well, the vultures are circling and they've been circling from day one. People wanted us to sign up so they can broker sales for us. Um, people <laughs> wanted to consult for us. Uh, people wanted to buy us. We had somebody uh, apparently talk to my CFO early on about offering us $30 million once we can open a few units and, and, and uh, demonstrate proof of concept. And um, my CFO was surprised when I when I declined the meeting. And he said, "You only want to know who it is." I was like, "We're not for sale. I don't care." You know. Um, and we've had we've had several situations like that since inception. So I know we're onto something here. Um, it's just a matter of having really good business fundamentals and being sober and clear headed about the decisions we make and the way we spend and how we invest in growth and the people. Most importantly, the people that we involve in this thing. People are the absolute most important part of business. Um, and speaking of which, Tim, you've been instrumental to us, so I wanna thank you for that. And uh, I wanna thank you for your time today. Is there anything You're you wanna mention that I haven't asked you about? No, I think, uh, I think we covered a lot. Just uh, uh, when we talked about having this call, you, you mentioned that uh, you wanted to sort of demystify some of franchising for prospective franchisees who might do this. And so, yeah, I'd urge them. Um, listen to this, look around, review that franchise disclosure document carefully. Um, I get, I get approached by 10 prospective franchisees about reviewing a franchise disclosure document for them. And I quote what I is actually too low a fee. I'm going to get out of that business. And I, I'm surprised if I hear back from one out of 10 or two out of 10, but it's interesting who does hire me. Um, lawyers who are going to buy a franchise who know what they don't know have have paid me to review the FDD and give them my thoughts and feedback. Uh, doctors, um, getting into uh, IV drip uh, concept, um, uh, hired me to review. But 
don't cheap out on getting good advice. If you're a prospective franchisee, spend a few thousand bucks. Um, there's an organization called the American Association of Franchisees and Dealers, exclusively represents franchisees. And they say you should spend uh, up to two to 4% of your overall investment on due diligence, uh, lawyers, accountants. So if you're looking at a, um, an investment with tenant improvements, build out equipment, uh, initial franchise fee training, that kind of stuff, and that all adds up to $200,000, you know, you should spend up to $4,000 on um, getting some outside advice. Um, you know, the more the investment, the more you might want to research that. Money well spent. So, and uh, not all lawyers understand business like Tim does. So I just want to caution anyone that's looking to buy a franchise against getting business advice from a lawyer. If you want business advice, contact someone that's run a successful business in your domain. That sounds blatantly obvious, but a lot of people are theorists. Don't trust the theorists. Trust the practitioners every single time. You know, what I try to do when I review the document is point out risks um, that are you know, inherent to the business or even mentioned in the document, but um, franchisees, uh, you know, kind of glaze over when they're looking at a 200 page document, the franchise agreement. I, I point out that there's personal guarantee in this document and your spouse has to sign it too. Um, that, you know, there's a minimum ongoing royalty that you have to pay whether you're open or not, you know, it depends on the concept. Just, just so the, if a franchisee goes in with their eyes wide open and knowing all these things, that doesn't, doesn't kill the deal. And I, I, I have only twice in um, the last 20 years, only twice if I said I wouldn't buy this concept. Hmm. Um, and um, one guy didn't, and he thanked me because it collapsed, and the other guy did, and he regretted it. Oof. But um, I just point out um, what is involved in a franchise relationship. It's different. For example, when you go to sell a small business, you can just sell it. But when you go to sell a franchise business, there are hurdles you have to go through. The franchisor has to approve the buyer. Because Damn right we do. You're going to be in a relationship. You're not going to and, sell it to your knucklehead cousin that's never lifted before. That's for sure. Yeah. Buyer has to satisfactory, complete training, all that kind of thing. So, you know, just point out that. So the franchisee goes in with their eyes open um, and then expectations are aligned and everybody ends up better off. Next time you're in the, the belly of the beast talking to these bureaucrat regulators, maybe suggest to them that there should be a page at the outset of the franchise disclosure document that just says material terms. These are the 15 things scattered throughout this 200 page document that if you don't read anything else, just be aware of these things. That would be extremely helpful. But of course, that's far too logical for, uh, for regulation. Uh, well, I think they think they're doing that because they've modified the first three or four pages of the document in the last few years. Okay. So they're getting to, okay, well, shit, I've, I'm happy to be proven wrong if they're moving in the right direction. <laughs> uh, Tim, you're a hell of a guy. Thank you. Do you want to plug your details in case anyone's listening to this and is uh, thinking about making the mistake of opening a franchise company? Well, I'm, I'm representing only franchisors these days, but uh, name is Tim Pickwell, P-I-C-K-W-E-L-L. -L. I have a website, Pickwell Law, that every few years I pay a Pakistani guy to update. So, <laughs> but you can reach me through that. <laughs> I, I don't get my clients off the internet typically. Yeah, yeah. All right, Tim. Well, thank you for everything you've done for us, man. And I enjoyed the conversation. You're welcome. All right. Talk soon.